If you were to ask me, what is one of the modern struggles, challenges, problems of Western culture? I would tell you undoubtedly that it is the problem of human connection. And why is human connection a problem? After all, haven't we been falling in love and forming friendships and living in communal societies for centuries? Well, we have, but I don't know that we've been doing it successfully. And in today's modern age, when so much of Maslow's hierarchy of needs is met for us, the problem of aloneness remains. The problem of feeling isolated, alone, lost in the world of who you desire to be, who you think you are, insecurity, the messages and narratives that you have about yourself, combined with the messages and narratives that the world is telling you. And in the midst of all of that, the question of, do I belong? Am I accepted? Do I have a place of being? where I can be myself. In today's episode of The Transformationist, my friend Timothy Eldred, a writer, author, speaker, joins me to talk about the problem of aloneness from his work on the book Alone Sucks. I hope that you will enjoy this conversation and leave it inspired and challenged to think about how to do more than just notice, but in fact, how to see, how to ear, hear, and how to ask good questions of people. Are you thirsty for inspiration and curious about the life-changing process of transformation? Welcome to The Transformationist. Whether you already know the transformation you're looking for or you're looking for guidance on the way there, these stories of hope will give you practical tips, plenty of encouragement and an invitation into real, life-giving transformation, whether you're transforming culture or becoming more yourself. Your story is welcome here. This week on The Transformationist, uh, it's a joy to have my friend Tim Eldred joining us on the show to talk about uh, the problem of aloneness, uh, but also the transformational power of good relationship and how that can um, heal us and help us. And um, it's going to be probably a, uh, a fun conversation. Um, partly because the conversation comes out of a number of years of um, what I would consider to be um, deep and honest uh, friendship that you and I have had, Tim. So thank you for coming on the show and um, thanks in advance for the authenticity and vulnerability that you bring to it. Oh, thanks for having me. I love the way you define our relationship, you know, the depth of it and the honesty of it. And it's, for me, it is a treasure and it's unique. I wish I had more. I wish I had more relationships like that. But I, since I don't, I cherish ours, Tosh. <laughs> oh well, thanks. No, you've made me feel emotional, and we're just at the beginning. My goodness. Um, so let's start a little bit with um, a little bit of your of your background. You are a, an author and a speaker. You've been, um, you know, a leader of organizations. Um, tell me a little bit about about who you are and about why you wrote the book Alone Sucks. Well, you know, I've been discovering, I think, for 49 years. Um, and I think I'm still discovering, especially in my role in leadership, that the loneliness of leadership, as they call it, is a self-inflicted myth. I think it's what I do to myself. I think it's what a lot of us do to ourselves, um, inadvertently. We 
by some lies or protocols that we can do it ourselves. We can pull ourselves up by our bootstrap. We can fix everything. And um, that's been my story for most of my life. As a youngest of four, kind of a leftover, I was supposed to be named Beth. And so, I mean, you can call me Beth if you want to. But And um, <laughs> in my family moved a lot. And so I lived in um, 18 homes by the time I was 18, from what I can calculate. Different town, different school, different community, and always finding myself trying to fit in and fix things myself and own it all myself, never really understanding that I uh, belong, didn't know I belong, and so I created a make-believe world for myself that became an eventual hole that I, I lived in and didn't know how to get myself out of it and didn't realize that you can't get yourself out of it. It requires relationships and it requires others. Tell, um, tell me a little bit about the, the whole um, in terms of um, how, what, did that, what did it look like for you to be living in a hole of uh, aloneness in the day-to-day? Because I think, you know, part of part of what I, I hope this conversation will unpack is actually some of the the hidden and the invisible aloneness that so many people are living with um, and that culturally I think, you know, we have a problem with in the West. Um, so what did it look like for you to be doing life um, in the whole? Well, it's a great question because alone isn't always evident. Um, it's internal. There are times when it rears its ugly head and manifests itself externally. And sometimes that's really evident to us. We see people in a state of despair, depression, and the physical characteristics and traits that uh, that carries. So my aloneness, my whole, my hell was in my mind. And it was a constant questioning, am I good enough? Do I matter? Does anyone care? Does anyone get me? Do I have a purpose? You know, will my life have any significant meaning? Questions that you don't necessarily think you would ponder at age 12, 13, 14, but you do. Uh, We see that really um, coming to life in the generation around us today in the world who four out of five define themselves as being alone. And so, but when you look at perhaps the way they present themselves to the world in social media or in a hallway, or can be a parent in a home, could be a person in a cubicle, everything looks good. So on the outside, I looked really good. I knew how to wear a mask. I knew how to pretend. I knew how to fake it to fit in. And the entire time I was, my hole was dying inside. It was just a desperate, lonely place where even in the midst of a crowd, sometimes in the midst of my home, which was not an unhealthy place, I grew up in a healthy home. There was this still sense of isolation. And it wasn't that I was isolating myself. myself. I just wasn't, I wasn't connected. I wasn't connected to anyone mm. in a real way. And um, because 
again, connection um, connection comes in different forms, and we can we can hide it. And so I can socially appear as though I'm connected, I'm part of the team, I'm part of the club, but my my heart wasn't connected. And it is a heart issue. And um, heart issue is even when you ask the question, I think, well, that's hard. That's hard to define what your whole looks like. But I, I, I happen to believe that for the majority of your lister, listeners, when you talk about not fitting in, not feeling good about who you are, not knowing if your life matters or that people notice you, I, I, I believe that's going to resonate with 100% of the people listening to our conversation. So, I mean, you had that experience as a young person, and and I think what we what we experience in our youth creates patterns, and it creates grooves, and it creates a way of being. It's it's how we 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 learn an operating system, yeah. so to speak, um, and and that carries through then into our young adulthood, and often into you know our, 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 we can be walking around age thirty, age forty, age fifty. We can be walking around still with those patterns. Um, of being that we learned as young people, um, what did you carry? Did you carry that that through that pattern of aloneness, that that sense of disconnection? I did. I think sometimes I still do. I think sometimes there's a remnant mm. of that, where just like you mentioned in our in our childhood, our adolescence, things become things become hardwired. You know, our moral code they say is hardwired by the time that we're nine. Our sense of identity, I think, goes hand in hand with that when you look at, you know, the the mental uh, development of a student. And, um, you know, part of my whole, when you don't feel like, hmm, you know, you, it's one thing to feel like, hmm, I don't belong. It's another thing to go, how can I, how can I um, medicate that? So my whole was drug abuse, substance mm. abuse. My whole was sexual promiscuity. My whole was being a bully, and um, which did other kinds of damage that, thankfully, after some real good professional help, I was able to overcome all of those things, um, the physical element of it. But that mental element, yeah, I've carried that on. I, I carried that on, and... Um, mm. There are days when I feel like I'm 110% secure. And then there's days when I walk into an unknown place or someone says something to me or I read something about myself online. And uh, my wife said one day, you should Google yourself. And um, I said, why would I want to do that? She said, I I don't know, but you have the innate ability to piss people off. And, um, you know. Which you know me, Tosh. That is true, and um, I am I am a good balloon popper, um, and so. But but, <laughs> I just think it's great to have people in your life that are prepared to tell you the truth like that. Yeah. <laughs> hey you Tim, know, I love you, but you I piss people off. So I, you know, um, but when those times happen, and I think I have rubbed somebody the wrong way, or somebody says something that um, goes against my sense of self confidence or security, um, I. I can be tempted to not only peek into the hole, but sometimes, you know, not for long periods of time, I can crawl in that hole. I can crawl in that hole. I don't, I, I don't want to pretend mm. that we completely ever outgrow um, loneliness. And, um, and there's a difference between loneliness mm. and aloneness. Lonely or being alone is a state of 
uh, proximity, where aloneness really is, in my definition, uh, it's a state of being. That's why you can be. That's why you can be alone in a crowd, right? You know, and yet there's times you can be alone with just yourself, but you don't feel this despair of loneliness, like it. Uh, it's me against the world. Right. And I think, you know, we've, we've um, spoken before, but let's talk a little bit about that spectrum of aloneness, because there can be times where alone is actually healthy, right? When if, if you're able to be alone and be grounded in a sense of security um, and be and be one with yourself and be fully yourself, then maybe that's a healthy thing at the Solitude, unhealthy yeah. end of yeah, Right, and but that unhealthy end of that spectrum, um, what does it what does it look like? Do you think, or what are some of the things that you've observed, observed, observed not just in yourself, but but also in others as you work with people? And I know you, you know you did a lot of research for the book. Um, what are some of the ways that that unhealthy aloneness manifests itself in our um, in our behaviour, in our um, in our being in the world as adults? You know, there's a few telltale signs that um, I think we need to be aware of in ourselves. We also need to be aware of in the people in our world. Mm. So, you know, and, and one of the ways that I know that I am struggling is when I'm I'm not sleeping well. Mm. There was a time um, about 15 years ago when I was still really overcoming this sense of. Um, self-inflicted um, struggle that I came down with amazing migraines and um, couldn't figure it out. Had no idea, but they were, you know, if you've had no migraines, you, they're debilitating. I would, my eyes would roll back in my head and I would pass out from pain, you know, and um, just beyond copable. And um, my doctor said, it's sleep deprivation. You're not sleeping. And I knew I wasn't sleeping. And um, so not only wasn't getting good rest and it was affecting my health, it was you know destroying my work life and my family life. And so one simple way that for me, and I think for many people, was you, you're losing sleep. You, sometimes you become obsessed with things, obsessed with stuff, obsessed with getting and getting and getting more because you're filling a void. And so it's not about relationships. It's not about people. It's about what I can gain, what I can get, how much money I can make, you know, what I can drive and status issues and stuff. Um, sometimes, you know, you attract as well people who are also incredibly lonely because there's an emotional neediness that comes with it. And I hate to say it, the whole birds of a feather flock together issue, but if you're not careful, you just, you attract people who um, don't help you mm. and um, because they're not emotionally strong. And so we gather for ourselves people in the same broken situation and um, we create our own little, we're tribe and we're getting people to, you know, acknowledge us, notice us, like us, which is another issue. And um, I think someday, sometimes, uh, more than we like to admit, as much as there can be benefit to the social media world in which we live in, um, when we find ourselves living on it, and that becomes our sense of validation, it's, it's another simple sign. Um, mm. You overreact to things. 
And so the littlest things begin to absolutely set you off and, um, or your health, you know, not just headaches, but you're, you're getting sick. You're sick a lot. And, um, or you're gaining weight or you're losing weight. You know, my skinny jeans no longer fit. Why is that? I'm not even on a diet. You know, not only should I really not wear skinny jeans in the first place, and, uh, <laughs> you know, not attractive, just not flattering. But there was, um, there's a sense of sadness, a sense of depression. It wasn't that many years ago um, where my wife actually sat me down and she said, you are a pain in the ass. You are hard to live with. You're mean. You're angry. And, mm. um, and I didn't recognize it, that, that my depression and my loneliness had, had slipped into something that was really impacting relationships. And um, I think there's a lot of times people don't feel like they can tell you that. and They just go through the emotional abuse we put them through due to our sense of being alone. And um, so she said, you're going to pick up the phone and here's who you're going to call. And then two or three people <laughs> in my life that I'm willing to be accountable to. And then she said, and then you're going to the doctor. And, um, and so, you know, I went to the doctor and I got help for it. And um, it, it took a little time. It took a little medication. And, um, and we controlled that and made sure we monitored it because of my um, past addictions. And um, I right. fought it. I fought it. Didn't want to put substances in my body again. And so we did the lowest dosage, but there are times that um, getting yourself out of your hole requires professional help. Mm. There's a paradox in that story that you tell that, that your wife, who is, you know, the closest person to you in so many respects, um, is also the person that, that then is pointing out to you how, how alone you are or were in that moment, how that aloneness um, pattern was resurfacing even in your most intimate and closest of relationships. And, and don't you think that's just such a, it's such a paradox, but I think it's, it's such a truism of life that we can actually find ourselves uh, so lost in the internal world of the narratives that we're telling ourselves, um, the, the experiences that, that we're having that are all either, you know, affirming or conflicting that narrative we have about aloneness or our insecurities or whatever is top of mind, um, that in fact the relationships that could be most healing end up being the ones that are in the firing line. Yeah, isn't, that is a paradox because the people who love us the most are receiving the greatest damage. And um, I remember actually as I was writing the book, I you know, was under deadlines with publishers and I had made some changes to the book. It was just going to be a book of information and it eventually ended up being a book about my story. And so, you know, I wrote 10 times what I printed. And um, for me, it was very cathartic, but I got lost in it. And in the midst of my losing myself in writing the new book, um, my wife actually looked at me and she said, I know you're writing a book about alone, but as you're doing so, I've never felt quite alone, this alone in our marriage because, mm. you know, now you're pouring yourself into something and um, it's taking all your time. And so the very person who my, you know, for 28 years of my life has, you know, got me out of my hole or got in my hole with me, um, I was actually digging a hole for her 
I think that's another part of the paradox that we do damage to relationships, but sometimes, you know, we mistreat people or we just don't pay enough attention. Uh, again, I don't think it's necessarily deliberate. Um, it's inadvertent, but that's why we have to, you can only, you can only fix an inadvertent situation with some intentional decisions. And so how to use my time. And so she could remind me of that, but yeah, we hurt the people we love and we actually in our loneliness make other people feel alone if we're not careful. And um, if they have committed themselves to being the, the savior, you know, of our struggle, there's, there's, <laughs> there's inadvertent, I overuse that word, but there's inadvertent um, risks of helping people out of their hole of aloneness. And you've got to know that going in. Which, which I think brings us to the, both the hopeful message, which is really what the heart of the book is about, um, but it's also, I think, a conversation that, that I'm constantly wanting to have, um, which is how do, we, how do we bring the antidote of meaningful, um, meaningful true relationship uh, to other people and how do we experience that ourselves? Because it's hard work and yet it's, it's a transformational experience to have people in your life who will tell you the truth, who will help you do the work and who will uh, tell you the truth to counter the negative narratives that we tell ourselves, right? Yeah, it's exhausting work. And um, what I've had to learn in years of working with clients and counseling people is that as much as I want to help you and will commit to getting into your hole, um, I can't own your consequences of your choices. Mm. Uh, and so life's about choices, choices of consequences, consequences produce chaos. And there's many times we absolutely need to let people own 100% of the consequence of their choices. When they're dealing with mental health and depression and this sense of feeling alone, there's those are the times when you rec recognize the need for rescue and um and you desperately want to join people in their their struggle but emotionally guarding yourself at the same time and part of the telltale sign for me of knowing when to inject myself some into somebody's situation is when i finally see them own it and um, right. acknowledge it, admit it, admit it, because you can't admit, you know, fix what you don't admit. And so I've learned to follow what I call the 51% rule. Mm. And um, you have to learn to recognize when people truly own their behavior. And, and there will people who be people who lie to you that say they own their behavior. But, you know, you can only work in truth and light. You can't work in shadow. you got to get everything on the table and shed light on it. Because if you shade any of the truth, stepping into a situation, when it comes out later, the, the damage control is just that much harder. And you lose the you lose the trust factor in that relationship of the person who's trying to help you. So I wait for people to come 51% of the way. I will meet you at the line, but I will not cross the line to give you help. I mean, unless it is a dire situation where someone's life is completely at risk. But even then, 
even them, sometimes that sounds heartless, is I need to see some evidence that you understand the depth of your problem and the depth of your pain. And if you're asking me for help, which usually is the last 1%, the first 50% mm. is noticing and confessing and acknowledging I've got, I need, I need somebody. And so that's a great step. And you, I mean, it's, it's the, the largest part of the equation, but it's not the hardest part of the equation. The hardest part of the equation is the 1% of reaching out to somebody. And um, that's when I know that you're ready um, for some support, some meaningful support. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, when I reflect on, uh, when I reflect on in my own experience of, because I, I hold, I hold friendship and relationship with this very high, high value. Um, but when I reflect on the relationships that I've lost along the way, um, or the ones that have hurt me the deepest, it's been where, uh, it's been where there hasn't been that 51% mark, or there hasn't been, um, the truth and the honesty of, um, Hey, this is, this is where I'm really at. And here's the work that I'm trying to do on myself, but I need, you know, I need, I need help to, to get the rest of the way, or I need support, or I need, you know, some, I need a, a, a truthful, safe place to, to be my full self. Um, and I think that the, that the, that's a really valuable lesson for me to have learned even in the last you know five years to have learned about about where and how to see that line of when somebody is doing the work and is actually bringing their truest self you know to the party because I think a lot of the time people we we live in our own mythology um or we create an idea of ourselves. I think sometimes we can even fool ourselves. Um, we can fool ourselves and then try and fool the people around us that we're in fact doing the work, but sometimes we're, we're just not. And that's been a hard lesson for me to learn <laughs> along the way. Cause I generally want to help people. Um, I've, I've always prided myself on being a person who, um, the thing I, I've, you know, I've basically said, if if you can reveal something about yourself that shocks me and causes me to 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 pull away from from friendship when when you need me then i'm not doing my part um but what i've what i've also learned is to is to counter that or to balance that ability to be a safe space for anybody's truth with then learning how to how to guard my own boundaries a little bit better and i think that that 51% rule is something that um, that I need to take on board into my own life and put, you know, and put into, into more practice. Um, what does it look like? Do you think, um, to be a, to be a, a good friend, what does it look like to be a meaningful person when somebody is doing 51% of the work? Well, when you talk about the, the truest part of yourself being honest, when someone starts to finally be honest with themselves, the greatest thing you can do for them is re reciprocate with honesty. We're, we're not a very honest global culture. We don't want to hurt mm. people. We don't even want to hurt people who are already hurting. And we'd hate to kick, you know, dirt in their hole or pour salt in their wounds. But a good friend tells you the truth, even if it yeah. costs you the relationship. And when you listen to people, and one of the one of the signs that you can see that people have not yet to be 
going to be honest with themselves yet, even if maybe they've asked you for help, is they're blaming. They blame somebody. They blame circumstances. They blame life. There's always somebody else's fault. And we get caught up listening and going, yeah, you're right. Yeah, I see that. Oh, absolutely. When we should say, listen, you're lying to yourself. And I've been seeing it for a long time. And because I'm a Mm. friend and I'd like to be a true friend and love you, I have to tell you that it's not true. It's not somebody else's fault. And so I have to be honest. I've got to point out that, hey, you're blaming. Or I've got to point out that, listen, you're ignoring the problem. And again, I'm pointing out that not just somebody else didn't to do it to you, but you're, there's something staring you in the face when you look in the mirror that everybody else can see, and they won't tell you. But I, because I'm a good friend, a true friend, I, I feel like I owe it to you to tell you the truth and point out the fact that you're wearing a disguise and uh, you're covering up things. You're, you're, you, you've got this facade going and this mask that you're wearing and um, it's, you know, it's beneath you. I see so much more potential in you and beauty in you than maybe you see in yourself because of what has happened. And there are times when then life does deal us a really devastating blow. There are people who abuse us mentally, physically, sexually, and that creates this hole. And so I'm not, I'm not um, ignoring those realities, but again, that happened to you. And, and you know the cliche that you know life is 90% of what happens to you and 10% of how you respond to it. And so you can live there and I'm in this miserable existence or I can help you out of it, but I've got to tell you what I really see. Mm. They may not receive it, but if they've asked you for help, they're probably more receptive for the truth than they were before they crossed that line. Hey there, Transformationists. It's time for the ad read. I know that you have dozens of emails flooding your inbox every day, and so I don't want to add to that chaos and noise. But I do want to encourage you to subscribe to the Transformationist newsletter so that every so often you get an update about what's been happening here on this podcast. You'll also get the opportunity to download tools that are being released to the website uh, every month or so. And the other thing that you'll get the opportunity to do is to sign up for your very own coaching session or an alignment workshop. Curious as to what that means? Ah, go ahead and visit the website, www.thetransformationist.org. I'll see you over there. And now back to the episode. Do you think that uh, one of the, when I was studying human communication eons ago, (laughs) Um, but but one of the things that we learned um, that we learned and that I've carried through is the the Johari window, um, which is more commonly people w- will recognise it as soon as I explain it. Which is that you know there are these quadrants of there are these quadrants of knowledge about ourselves and about the scenarios that we're in. One is um, 
here's what the first quadrant is, everything that's known and it's known by everybody. So, you know, you know about me and I know about me that I enjoy uh, whiskey and I enjoy a good conversation. Um, And so everybody everybody knows that. Everybody's down with that. Then there are things that, that you know about me, that you see in me that I'm actually blind to in myself or I haven't noticed or I don't understand the truth of. Um, And then there's the stuff that I know about myself that I don't share with you or with anybody else in the world. And then there's the bucket of the unknown unknown, which is what I haven't yet learned about myself and what you haven't learned about me either, because it's still there in the bucket of unknowing. Mm. Um, And life is, I think, you know, that that journey of um, hopefully our self-knowledge and self-awareness is constantly growing so that the bucket of unknowing is shrinking over time. Um, but but also then we grow through um, through that that portion of what what I know and what you know about me is is growing as opposed to um, as opposed to the the flip side, which I think sometimes happens, which is that aloneness can push us into that bucket of here is my internal story that I know about myself that I'm not sharing with anybody. Um, and when we when we lose the the objectivity, when we lose the input of having other people speak into that narrative, because I think aloneness pushes us into that space, right? We don't we're scared to reveal ourselves. We're scared to talk about the things that we're most deeply fearful of. We're scared to talk about the things you know sometimes we're scared to talk about our truest desires because all of those things when we're living in a bucket of insecurity uh, are pushing us further into ourselves and our internal narrative which is often negative um, but it's reduced and the more we go into that internal bucket the more we limit and reduce the ability of other people to tell us an objective truth that counteracts that narrative does that make sense you know the reason that we feel alone. And I used the word earlier, self-inflicted. I don't believe that most of the time that we intend to ever be alone, but we have responded poorly or improperly to situations that created it. And one of those is because perhaps we are, we are our truest self one time and we put ourselves out there and we exposed our heart and somebody took advantage of it. And so mm. they kind of stomped on our heart. And so in order to in order to get out of the hole, there's a level of vulnerability. We have to um, expose ourselves. We have to be naked. We have to be vulnerable. Mm. And yet that's the hardest one to overcome is because probably the last time I did that is why I'm in this aloneness. And so why would I possibly do that? <laughs> why would talk- I possibly do that? What again? are you talking about? <laughs> I've never had an experience like that ever. I'm sure nobody no. can relate to that story you're telling. <laughs> but I think that's exactly what you're talking about. The part of the bucket, we we don't even recognize it. We've buried it. Um, we're unwilling to see it, or maybe we've never seen it. But but getting it out there and letting other people even talk into it, we're like, why would I? Why would I let someone slap me again? This safer mm. in here. It's just it's just mm. safer to crawl in my own hole and stay there because every time because we'd love to think that when we expose ourselves or when we try to help somebody else there would be a reciprocal symbiotic relationship there they would they would you know yin and yang or bounce the ball back and forth that there would be this response mechanism mm. and sometimes there's not 
Sometimes we go to help somebody and they don't receive it. And sometimes we ask for help and somebody doesn't help us. And we continue the cycle. Now, it's not a never-ending cycle. It does break in time. But you can't break it. And here's the, here's the paradox. You can't break alone alone. You can't right. break alone alone. Because we're people that are, we're community people. We're relational people. Mm. You know, there's a connectivity that we need with other people. The problem that I'm seeing is that society has become relationally retarded, stunted. If we don't, <laughs> we don't know how to have conversations that don't include just, you know, a few characters and um, a little push yeah. notification. And when we really want somebody to help us out, the best we get is a like or a thumbs up or a heart emoji or something when we were really crying, crying for help. And we don't know how to have real conversations with people. We, we're, we spend our life in a screen and uh, we have our conversations mm -hmm. on a screen. Um, you know, instead of picking up the phone or, or making a, a coffee appointment, we send an email and which does not really mm. communicate what I'm really wanting to tell you face to face, eye to eye, so that you can see through my demeanor that you are important to me. Yeah. I mean, I don't think we could, we could, we, we, this, this problem, the problem of aloneness, the question of how to connect with people is an age-old human problem, right? It's part not of the new. human experience. It's not new. <laughs> but we couldn't have this conversation without talking about social media and, and I guess the, the, the evolution of digital relationship and digital connection um, because – I think what you, I mean, what you're talking about is, is the innate human desire and the need. It's an actual, I think it's an actual need. It's a physiological, psychological need for relationship with other people. And yet, in um, a lot of that interactivity has devolved down into um, platforms where we simply put stories put narratives, put glimpses of ourselves out into the world that we either think will be accepted or will be, um, or will be, um, they'll provoke some sort of reaction or response. Um, but it's such a, in so many respects, it's such a shallow platform. It's such a shallow way of trying to find meaningful engagement. And what I, uh, what I see so often, uh, you know, and I'm sure you see it too, but what I see so often are, um, are people exposing their pain in social media? They either expose their pain or they expose their best version of themselves um, in the hopes of being noticed, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> in the hopes of being noticed. Somebody see me, somebody somebody affirm me, you know, give me a thumbs up or a heart emoji as you as you talk about. But the the challenge that I have is whether or not we're actually being seen in the in the midst of that you know are we are we defaulting the majority of our human connection into into just noticing things as they fly by as opposed to seeing and engaging you know part of your audience will obviously immediately gravitate and understand the depth of the conversation and see themselves as part of the solution and that is the issue of social media is not a demon it's an open door because now people 
they're they're not as good at hiding as they used to be because they live their life in a public space and a public platform. The question is, do we recognize their filtered life as a cry mm-hmm. for help or an authentic presentation of who they really are? So it used to be that you really had to know people intimately to see things they tried to hide. And now they inadvertently expose themselves and come out of hiding and let everyone see their, their pain or their problems um, at a click of a button or a post. How do we respond to it? And I think many times we thub our way through our, our, our phone or our computer screen and we read everyone's post and they see the pictures they placed out there, whatever they want us to believe about themselves. And we just go through it as opposed to stopping and really reading and going, you know, that is a cry for help. They don't even know it's a cry for help, but the pattern is getting very evident. And so mm. If I've earned the right, if I have a relationship or if I know somebody else with a relationship, I will go out of my way to reply. I seldom reply to somebody's post um, publicly. It's always a direct message because I think for many people that I work with, I see what they post as, hey, notice me, pay attention to me. And so if I just post something, sometimes what I post Sometimes I, I'd say I. Sometimes we post things um, to trump what somebody else just posted, and uh, and we're like, <laughs> oh, I know it happened to me too. You know, my cat just died, and it's my ninth cat, and it's you know, it's just been so hard on me. And they go on their whole life story, and you're going, this wasn't about you, but you just made it about <laughs> you, and. Um, and so how do we not how do we not reply and take away from actually we're just digging their hole deeper like oh I know it was about you and you really wanted help and then I just told everybody and now people are giving me the same sympathy that you were looking for. And it's like okay you're not helping the situation here. Send a message, pick up a phone, create an appointment, let them know privately because you know most of our pain is private and the cure for our pain is also private. When I say that, I mean with somebody in um, a sacred space, not a public forum, not a public platform. Let's talk a little bit about, uh, you mentioned the word authenticity. And I think that authenticity can sometimes be a buzzword. And I think it relates to this idea about the social media platform or the way that we engage now. Um, And so many of our interactions with people we I think it's easy to talk about authenticity um, in a way that is a little bit shallow a little bit one or two dimensional um, that authenticity is simply being an open book about some parts of your life but I I'm not sure that authenticity I'm not sure that we actually have a good a satisfactory I often talk about problems with the English language and I think this is one of them that we don't necessarily have a satisfactory common understanding of what authenticity really means because authenticity to be authentic is not just to be 
you know, your yourself or whichever version of yourself or to be an open book about everything that you're experiencing in a one-way transaction, right? It's not just communication out. Um, authenticity in relationship, I think, has to have some um, reciprocity. And I think that if you're going to expose yourself and be authentic and vulnerable and transparent, you need to be careful where you do that because, again, not everyone will reciprocate. But being authentic in an artificial world is really a challenge. And so when I... When I'm self-reflective enough and honest enough to ask for help for somebody, I ask for help for somebody who can actually help me. Somebody who's been there, been in my shoes, walked it. Somebody who's went through a marriage crisis and came out the other side. Somebody who's went through mental health issues and came out the other side. Somebody who's been financially destitute and has come out the other side. I'm looking for that experience in finding somebody who's shared that in a way that I think, ah, I value that. I would like to emulate that. I would like to have that relationship with them. The problem is, going back to authentic, and I mentioned it earlier, is we're in an artificial world. And quite often, artificial and authentic, I'm sorry, but we have learned so well to make them almost look and taste the same where you can't tell the difference. And I'm wondering if we have Mm. been swimming in an artificial world for so long that we don't know that the stuff in the package is killing us. I mean, you pick up a container of really good ice cream, and I know because I like really good ice cream. You know, and I, I loved growing up where my dad made ice cream on special events out in the garage. And so it was cream and it was eggs and it was sugar and it was vanilla. And that's about all it was. And I, I, I can remember that flavor of our authentic. But yet today I can go to the store and I can buy a container of ice cream that has got more chemicals and more additives and more ingredients than you can possibly begin to list, let alone pronounce and go, yeah, that wasn't bad. I like that. All the same time, Mm. it's destroying me from the inside out. And so how to discern the difference between authentic and artificial and truth and honesty and vulnerability is a challenge. I'm not always sure I'm not always sure I can see it, Tosh. Um, And I'm not always sure, to be honest, that I always present the most authentic part of me because I've been either hurt before or I don't trust you. I don't know you. Um, I'm only flying in here for 24 hours. And so I'll let you see what I want you to see. And um, now, you know, I wear that mask or I'll give just enough truth to create a connection, but I'm still guarded because mm. I'm afraid of well, the artificial piece. Yeah, that's the um, that's the. Uh, <laughs> I, I I guess I would refer to that as like that's the dinner party stories, yeah. right? Those are the stories about ourselves that are that are true. 
that present us in in a great light, <laughs> that make us sound, you know, uh, warm and open and approachable and friendly, but they're really well practiced. You know, they're the stories and the parts of ourselves that we've learned are safe to present in any in any kind of context in order to be accepted by you know people around us. Um, but but getting to that slightly deeper place I think requires a different kind of intentionality and I think you have to test it right um I think you have to this is my reflection over the last few years has been more and more um more and more rather than leaping into um bringing my whole vulnerable and authentic self to the table um I'm learning always learning um to test more and to to open up a little bit and to see what you do with See what if I give you a little piece of my true self. What do you do with that? You know, are you trustworthy with that? Are you responsive to that? Are you actually hearing me? Are you really listening and seeing who I am, um, or are you um, not really, you know, engaged? And those are the some of the those are some of the little tests I think that I that I am trying to practice now um, to learn more about how I can be intentional about trying to be my truest self in relationship but also doing that in safe spaces where it's actually worth you know I think of that old proverb about not casting pearls before swine you know I'm like there's a swine test there's a swine test because <laughs> you know we aren't always good I say we meaning me I'm not always good at just slowly wading in um Mm. There is, and this goes back to my entire lifelong story, there is a need for validation that sometimes I just dive in deep. And I'm trusting that the waters are safe underneath there, that there's nothing I'm mm. going to dive into um, that is going to do me great damage instead of, you know, testing the waters, as you say, wading in slowly and exposing little bits of myself to see what you'll you'll do with it and um and then go okay let's try a little bit try a little bit more so i should be more guarded at times i mean i'm not anymore i mean my life is in a book now so there you go i am what i am what you read is what i am <laughs> i can't hide it any longer and so i've got nothing to lose now because it's in print but there are times that what if I shared just enough to see if you were really listening to me in responding? Mm -hmm. You know, I have conversations with people where I, um, I open up and the next time I have a conversation, I can tell that you really didn't pay attention. You didn't hear what I said. And um, because if I asked you to repeat it, you wouldn't remember it. You, you, you didn't absorb it. It kind of like it was there, it was on the surface, but you didn't really see me. And it's not just that you don't mm. see me because I mean, I can notice you, I can like you, I can give you some kind of surface validation. But for me in my household and especially in my relationship with my wife, is um and my sons one of my sons said to me not very long ago dad you don't hear me and i think i hear what he's saying and i said well tell me again mm. and i'll tell my wife say it again she goes if i have to say it again it's not worth it because you didn't listen the first time 
So that depth of relationship, again, isn't just always what I see, what I perceive, what I think I know. It's getting that depth I think we're talking about is a heart issue where people are free to share, but I have to, I have to internalize that. I have to really be present. And that's what I say to Cindy when we're having an in-depth conversation and I turn my phone off or I shut my computer, which I'm not always good at doing. And I haven't shut off the day yet. I'm still in the office in my mind where I close down everything else. And when I respond to her, I've learned to say, because this works for her. And um, I hear you. I hear what you're saying. Here's what I heard. And um, that shows empathy. It, it, it shows that I'm paying attention and that my behavior will change or I'll do better next time. Um, and I shouldn't have to get to a point where she has to beg for it. And I create that aloneness. And so to be, mm. to be aware enough to know at the end of the day, when she comes home from teaching 750 or 150 seventh graders, 750 seventh graders, that just sounds like hell right there, doesn't it? Hundred. 57th graders <laughs> she's tired and she wants to put her feet up and have a glass of wine and she wants to share this whole day with me with 15 stories of kids that she's trying to love on and some days she does well and some days it's a real challenge she doesn't need me to say anything she just needs me to listen and be present just by listening and being present and, and what that requires is time i help her not get in a hole where she's battling the world by herself. And I do think time is the issue. I mean, I think relationships the issue, but you can't build relationships without time. Lives are changed through relationships. Relationships that change lives take time. So how, how are we giving people mm -hmm. our time? Because I think that is the currency um, that especially people struggling with any kind of emotional struggle, mental health, whatever it might be, you know, aloneness, what they're really begging for because time is relationship and relationships that change lives take time. Let's talk a little bit. I'm, I'm interested to hear your thoughts around, because I think we've, we've spoken a lot about what good and meaningful relationship, you know, looks like what it tastes like, you know, what does the real thing, you know, look like what, what have you seen, um, you know, maybe in yourself, but in in others as you've observed and as you work with people, how how does good relationship, whether a marriage, a friendship, you know, a peer or mentor relationship, what does, how does good relationship transform and heal us? You know, I love relationships with people who have nothing to prove. And... Um, they're not out to get anything from me. But I, I have a worldview that says that relationships complete us. And um, that without relationship, there's no encouragement. Without relationship, there's no accountability. Without relationship, there's no support. So when I look at my relationships and how they help me, I have to look at the people that I'm spending my time with is our conversation about you 
When I ask you a question, do you ask one in return? Um, or every time I bounce the ball to you, do you do you keep it and, and make it about your life, your issues, your kids, your job, your struggle? Healthy relationship for me that completes me are relationships that are more concerned about me and more concerned about the relationship than they are themselves. They're hard to find. So the average adult, from my understanding, will have two or three really best friends in their life. And what makes them a, a best friend? What makes that relationship healthy? I think when it's unselfish, when your friend's more concerned about your well-being and your household and your struggles and listening to you that than they are telling you about theirs. And that's the only reason you're there is because so you can be a sounding board. That sounding board has to be a two-way street. And when, and when it is, it opens up again that door of trust, as we've mentioned. And I can, I think, unpack dirt. You can only carry so much dirt before it gets too heavy, you know? And pain inside that festers or frustrations that grow, they have to be released. I'm always looking for the relationship that people let me release and lay things at their feet. And um, I'm not asking them to own it. I'm just asking you to let me get rid of it for a while. I think that is a, an art. I think relationship is an art. And I think it's been lost. I don't think it can't be regained. I think there are some obstacles in our world that are um, kind of a dichotomy. I mean, like we talk about social media, there's good and the bad. And there's parts of our relational culture that are that have been stunted and retarded and aren't growing, but if we recognize them, again, I think it goes back to the conversation of what does artificial look like and authentic look like. An authentic relationship is one that lets me be authentic. And when I do that, I feel really healthy and whole. And when I have to pretend and wear a mask and be artificially flavored, that's not a healthy relationship for me. It just drives me deeper into my hole. So, mm. Do you think sometimes we risk um, substituting quantity of connection with people for quality? You ever of looked connection? at your social media page and somebody likes you had today? How many friends are following you? You ever measured somebody else by <laughs> how many people follow them? Right? I mean, I know, I know today on Instagram, I have 16,000.2 friends, 16,200 people who follow me. Okay, that doesn't mean anything. Because I guarantee if I did some kind of search, 16,100 might be fake, right? But I feel right. really good because my Instagram page is exploding, right? That's not a relationship. But, mm. you know, we have learned, I think it's our human nature. Again, I'm not just throwing rocks and being indicting. I think we have made face-to-face -face and Facebook synonyms. And we have replaced mm. quality <laughs> with quantity and which I would go back to our conversation and say, we've learned to swallow artificial and call it yummy. And yet mm. we're dying for something real. Like I've got a friend mm. that told me a couple months ago that in 2020, 
he is deleting all his social media pages. This is a very public figure. And um, he makes a lot of money off his social media. He has learned to turn likes into dollars. And I'm like, you're going to do what? How do you how do you market and brand and expand in today's world if you delete all your social media? Let me know how that works for you. And if you figure it out, I would like to buy the book. And um, his response was, I've just figured out that I can do more good. I can book more events. I can influence more people face-to-face. And I'm much more fulfilled by that than I am um, having a vast of people follow me that I I don't know. And I think what he's saying is Mm. there's nothing inherently wrong with having quantity of followers and fans. But it's not sustainable. It's not um, fulfilling. And if he had to choose between more speaking events and more presentations or a handful of healthy clients and relationships, he would take that because it makes it, it makes his heart sing. And he doesn't question who he is. Mm. Uh, so I think he's experiencing the good, the bad, the ugly, and everything in between and decided that, you know, for me, I feel like I need to spit this out and only focus on what I know is healthy. Mm. I think, you know, there's there's so much uh there's so much space for uh affirmation, like a, a, a the the affirmation of of, you know, the likes, the comments, the what have you. Um there's so much space for affirmation, but it's not the same as being truly seen and i guess like i would liken it to internet dating <laughs> which i think works great for some people but uh but not for me because i struggle how to figure out uh, i i struggle how to figure out how to put my my whole four-dimensional mm-hmm. self uh into pixels i can't figure out how to do that without actually just having a, a face-to-face conversation with somebody to figure out you know, not only do I see you and do I like the vision, the reality of who you are versus the version that that you might put yourself, uh, the version of yourself you might put on the internet, but also, you know, that same comment we were making before about, do you see me? You know, do you see the reality of me with my complexities and my nuances and and all of the things that that complicate me, but but make me who I who I really am? And I think that's part of that that challenge is the difference between the difference between uh, using other people in a in a single simple kind of transaction to to give us some kind of affirmation to keep us going forward when actually, you know, I think one of the the most uh, the most healing and helpful aspects of personal development that can only happen in connection with other people um, is related, I think, to what you were saying about doing the fifty one percent of the work, which is that I can, uh, I can work day in day out on building my my self esteem, my my self confidence, my sense of identity. You know who I think I am, who I want to be in the world. I can work on that really, really, really hard. Um, but ultimately, I need for somebody else outside of who I am to recognize that and to affirm it in its fullness. 
um, and to say, yes, you are, you know, you are all of those things. You are capable and confident and strong and uh, empathetic and you're warm and all of those things that I am working hard to be. I think that can only really happen in in a deeper, more meaningful transaction of friendship than just, you know, a pixel. But moving moving from pixels to from pixels to people i think can be really hard work validation is impossible in a vacuum it just can't happen i don't i mean self gratification self fulfillment self help you know i i researched reams over years of this topic and I found more experts who would probably disagree with my point of view or premise of the book um, that their answer was always, you can do this. You know, don't rely on others because people will let you down. Okay, well, that's true. But it seemed to me such a, such a, shallow answer because the very thing they're telling you and your in your your expertise in psychiatry is that due to people's behaviors i feel like i've gotten here and so the self-protectionism says so don't let them ever do that to you again i think that's completely wrong i don't think there can be wholeness without vulnerability I don't think there can be just like I can't think there's restitution without some kind of confrontation. Um, just because we've been damaged by something before, it, I mean, I might have touched the stove one time and it burned me, but that doesn't mean I've I've quit using a stove and only went to a microwave. You know, <laughs> <laughs> I've right. just learned how to navigate my way around the kitchen better, including the stove. And um, doesn't mean I avoid the stove and throw the stove out into hell with stoves, right? You know, I think we do that if we're not careful with people. And that's why, I mean, as I set to write the conclusion of the book, I'm, I'm thinking, I don't know how to say the remedy or the antidote, the solution, any clearer. And I wouldn't even when I wrote it, I thought, you got to be able to say more than that. You haven't led people all the way down this rabbit trail just to give them a, you know, a few words. There's got to be a whole chapter on this response mechanism that gets me out of my aloneness. And the truth is, for me, there's not. From my own life experience, there's not. From my experience working with you know, countless people, there's not. To remove your aloneness, you have to remove the aloneness of others. I mean, when you step in to help somebody else, you're not alone. And they're not alone. Mm. Uh, when you ask somebody to step into your hole, you're asking them to remove your loneliness. And at the same time, you're actually being preventative to allow aloneness to set into their life. I mean, let's acknowledge, first of all, going back to you can't fix what you, what you don't admit, that at some point in time, regardless of how healthy we might think we are, we are going to go through a period of aloneness. So acknowledge it, look at it, admit it, see it in other people's life. Have that level of empathy and then stand with them. Stand alone together. And when we stand alone together, you know what happens? Nobody's alone. I ask this of crowds all the time. 
Raise your hand if you've ever felt alone. And it could be a room in thir- of 30 or a stadium of 30,000 people. There's not a hand that doesn't go up unless they're you know, so afraid of admitting it because they've been alone. They don't want the person next to them to think that, well, you got problems. We all have problems. And so I ask them to look around the room. What do you see? And the, 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 the simple irony of it is with 30,000 hands in the air, you've learned one thing today. You are not alone. So how are we going to work together, stand alone together to make sure no one has to live in a hole and go through hell feeling like they don't matter? Mm. How did it happen for us? How did we become friends that can step into the dark spaces? I'm going to blame you. No, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to give you credit. And um, because you, you are honestly a better friend to me than I probably am to you. And I'm not saying that patronizingly. So hear me out here. Here's what you do so well that I'm still learning to do, even as the person who's speaking on it, writing on it, you know, and presenting on this issue, you ask the best questions. Because I think the smartest person in the room is always the person who asks the best questions. The person I usually ignore is the person who usually thinks they have the answers. I usually think <laughs> I have the answers, right? So my wife says, you love an audience. You'd love to hear yourself speak. Yes, I do. I know that. I have to work really hard at the art of asking good questions. What people ask you about yourself, I think, is a, a good, fair indication of their sincere interest in you and Mm. how they ask them removes any pretense that there's some selfish motivation. And so in our conversations, even recently face-to-face, you asked questions in a way that allowed me to open up in a way that I've only done with a handful of people. You engaged, and um, and maybe that's a perception, you know. Like Elder's a mess, man. We I gotta figure <laughs> out what's going on in this guy's <laughs> life before no, you know, never. before his hole gets so deep we can't see him down there. You know, he's in China or somewhere. And um, I think that's how it, how it happened with us. But I I hope I've reciprocated, reciprocated, you know, over the years. But you you are you're quick to engage and um and i learned from that in my relationships with other people you know that for a moment i can shut me off and make it all about you and um if i'm willing to do that my wife's the best at that i've ever seen i'd love to go to dinner with my wife because i never have to talk and um (laughs) with other people like another couple or a group because, and I warn people who like fly in or travel and visit our offices or my home. I said, listen, you are going to be interrogated tonight. And because uh, <laughs> Cindy legitimately wants to know who you are. She wants to know what makes you tick. She wants to know what makes you bleed. And so if you're not comfortable answering questions, we should probably go out to dinner before we get to my house or just drop you off at the hotel. And, um, because she engages with people. She takes an interest in people. And um, maybe, maybe 
in your audience, maybe that's something we could all learn as we're listening. Maybe for five minutes a day, we could make it about somebody else. Mm. Um, sometimes that's hard when that's our job. You know, sometimes our job is making it about other people. But for many of us, we we we're busy throughout the day. We're you know at our place of work, or maybe we're home alone, or in school, or whatever it might be. And um, we're waiting to be noticed. But what if we actually took time? This is this is where this is where the beauty of this whole thing comes in. If we just took time to make it about somebody else, we would remove their aloneness, and we make it about somebody else. It actually removes ours too. When we make it about somebody else, it's not about me. It's about them. And I feel better about me when I make it about them. And for that momentary time, it was like, huh, there was a ray of hope. Maybe that five minutes would spill over into 10. Maybe it'd become, you know, a way of life. And everything we post, everything we say, every activity we do wouldn't just be about me and my needs. You know, me, myself, and I. And I think that's part of the whole we've dug. It's me, myself, and I in a hole I've created because I didn't make it about you. I, 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 I have a lot of hope that my redemption story can be somebody else's redemption story. That somebody will enter your world and take a great interest in you. I mean, my, my redemption story really didn't begin until I met my wife who just looked at me and literally said these words, you are a mess. What in the world are you possibly going to do with your life? She was able to, it's the greatest pickup line ever. Well, I asked her to marry me two weeks later, you know? And so <laughs> people were like, what? Cindy, I'm marrying Cindy. They said, Cindy who? Oh, the, the, the woman I met a couple weeks ago. Seriously. <laughs> and then people thought like, is she pregnant or what's the deal? I mean, I'm like, I, I haven't kissed her yet. You haven't kissed her yet. No. And you're getting married. Yeah. Why? Because love's a choice. Love is a choice. Mm. And she entered my world and she's earned the right already. And so it was just that simple when she was taking an interest in me to get me out of my hole. And um, I, I think, I think that level of redemption is available to everybody, but I think it depends on, your listeners and readers of the book to practice self-denial for a little while to recognize the value of it. Mm. I will always have five minutes and more for <laughs> you, my friend. I know you will. Uh, <laughs> if people want to get a hold of the book and I hope that they, that they will, what is the best place to get a copy of Alone Sucks? AloneSucks.com. Pretty simple to remember. You can buy it anywhere, but, you can buy it, you know, for the best price at alonesucks.com. And um, so I encourage them to go there. I'll actually sign it if they don't mind me devaluing their copy. And because um, <laughs> the ones that come from Amazon, Barnes and Noble or Target, you know, those are just, I don't know where, some, they're in somebody's warehouse. The ones that come from here are in my warehouse. So. Very good. Thank you so much for your candor, your honesty, and um, and for the input. Um, my hope is that uh, people listening to this particular episode um, are encouraged in their aloneness to go and meet somebody else in theirs uh, and to start paying attention 
to listen, to see, to hear, to ask good questions, um, and not just to notice what's going on around them. Thank you so much, my friend. Thank you for having me, Tash. Hi, it's Tash, and it's time for the credits. Thanks for joining us on this episode of The Transformationist. Please subscribe, rate, and review this episode wherever you listen to it, and share it with a friend. Visit thetransformationist.org for links to the resources mentioned in this episode and to subscribe to our email updates. You can also share your transformation story with us there, and I would love to hear from you. As always, this episode is produced by Michael Yoda at Truthwork Media. Music is by Hans Van Vliet. For more about me and the transformation work I do, check out the website. This show is proudly made possible by Solar Feeder Consulting.